The conservative leadership candidates claim to have recruited over half a million members into the party. Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh should be shaking in their boots. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. So there was a bit of news with the conservative leadership race last week. Friday was the membership cutoff. So as of midnight on Friday, you could no longer sign up for a membership in order to vote in the leadership race. Of course, the leadership uh, race is going to happen in September. But in order to vote in that September race, you have to have been a member and the membership cutoff came and went on June 3rd. So following that, we sort of saw an avalanche of announcements from the various candidates bragging and boasting about the number of memberships that they and their campaigns have sold. So it started off with Patrick Brown at noon on Friday. Uh, Patrick Brown tweeted the following, claiming to have sold over 150,000 memberships. He said, I'm so happy to announce that we have smashed our membership goal and they're still pouring in. Thank you so much to my hardworking team from coast to coast. A few hours later, Jean Charest also claimed that he had the points needed to win. He tweeted this at 4 p.m. He said, we are excited to confirm that we have the points needed to win the Conservative Party leadership. We have recruited tens of thousands of new members and re-engaged thousands of past members. There is still a lot of work to do. Getting out the vote is critical to our victory. And then I think the biggest news of the entire weekend came on Saturday morning when Jenny Byrne, who is Pierre Polyev's campaign advisor, she, she tweeted this about the Pierre Polyev campaign. These numbers are incredibly staggering. She wrote this. She said... 311,958 Canadians joined the Conservative Party through the pierreforpm.ca membership website. Last night, Pierre's campaign wrote to the Conservative Party headquarters asking it to publicly release the number of memberships sold through the Pierre website, and we encourage all campaigns to follow suit. And so, you know, there was that, that, that tweet went viral. Every journalist, every political insider uh, was just sort of shocked to see that number, that huge number of people, of Canadians who were inspired by Pierre. So just, just from these three campaigns alone, uh, we, we, we could surmise at what, 460, 470,000 plus however many Jean Charest brought in, maybe 400,000, uh, sorry, maybe 500,000 Canadians joined the party just to vote in this. No matter which way you look at it, there's a lot of enthusiasm. And I want to talk about that enthusiasm and break down these numbers a little more. And that's why I'm pleased to be joined by Hamish Marshall, our friend Hamish, who is a partner over at One Persuades, a government relations and strategy firm. You know him because he was our in-house pollster at True North during the 2021 election. He's also worked for Andrew Shear and Stephen Harper. Uh, Hamish, welcome back to the show. Great to see you. Good to be here, Candace. So, what was your what was your impression when you saw these campaigns releasing these staggering numbers? I mean, just by by contrast, we can look at what the numbers were back in you know in twenty twenty when they were voting when Aaron O'Toole became leader. One hundred and seventy thousand Canadians voted in that race in twenty seventeen. The, the campaign that you ran for Andrew Scheer, one hundred and forty thousand Canadians voted back when Justin Trudeau was about to be uh, elected leader of the Liberal Party back in two thousand thirteen. One hundred and four thousand people voted in that in that leadership race, 80,000 voted for Trudeau. So, you know, we're talking about huge multiples and, and a huge uh, growth in, in enthusiasm. Uh, what do you make of all this? Well, look, it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's, it shows that there's Canadians who are really engaged in this race. There's a chunk of Canadians who are excited conservative voters, but an awful lot of new people, people who don't have a background in politics. 
um, have gotten involved and have signed up um, for all the candidates, but particularly for Pierre, uh, for Pierre Polyev. Uh, I mean, it's it's really uh, staggering numbers, and watching them roll in was was incredibly uh, exciting. And uh, you know, I think it's, it speaks very well, and it speaks to you know it speaks to something interesting. I think what we see with Trudeau, you know, Trudeau claimed to have signed up about 150 to 160 thousand people back in 2013. The media called it staggering. They said it was evidence of Trudeau mania. The thing about that race. Is you didn't have to pay in order to join the Liberal Party to be a supporter to be able to vote. You just have to sign up. You just have to give your email address, and that's all it took. So Trudeau was able to get you know 150, 160 thousand people when they didn't have to pay. What's amazing about these numbers is that you know uh, Pierre Polyev signed up 311 thousand uh, people who all had to pay 15 dollars a head, uh, and that speaks to a level of dedication and a level of excitement and interest in this race that I think we've never seen anything like this before in Canadian politics. And we should uh, disclose to the, the viewers, you should know that uh, Hamish is involved in the Pierre Polyev campaign. And so you're not uh, an independent observer. You're, you're working over with Pierre. And I, I want to ask you, Hamish, because throughout the campaign, we've seen huge rallies, huge, huge numbers of people lining up to go out and see Pierre. It really seems like there's an electricity and excitement around that campaign. And we saw the media sort of try to downplay it and say that, okay, well, you know, he's just uh, picking up the momentum from the trucker convoy and these aren't really voters and it's not going to convert into memberships. It's sort of uh, people being skeptical, I would say, of the ground campaign that Pierre might be able to run. Well, if, if these numbers are accurate and, and, they, and they turn out to be, I think that Pierre has really proven those pundits and those journalists wrong. Uh, what, 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 do you, what do you take about the, uh, the difference between the way that the media covered Trudeau back in 2013 and the so-called Trudeau mania uh, signing up free members versus how Pierre has been treated in this race? Look, what Pierre is doing is he's changing the paradigm. He's, he's, he's connecting with groups of people, Canadians who have never been involved in politics. The overwhelming thing you find if you go to one of Pierre's rallies, and I know, you know you've had your team there, when you start asking people, have you ever been to a political event before? It's, no, it's my first one. You hear that again and again and again. And uh, what's happening is that, that Pierre is connected with a group of people who are not traditionally being super involved in Canadian politics. And the traditional uh, people in Canadian politics, whether that's the, the, the insiders in Ottawa or the media, don't understand that. It's not people like them. It's not their friends going down to a Pierre rally. As a result, they keep coming up with excuses about why it can't be real. Sure, you get big rallies, but it's only in Calgary or in Alberta or conservative areas. Oh, now you're getting big numbers in Windsor and Ottawa and Toronto and places that conservatives don't do well, but those people won't sign up. Oh, now they've signed up, but they won't actually vote. We keep hearing all these excuses. The reality on the ground is that people are, um, are, are engaged, they're fired up, they're looking for something different, and that's, something that's what Pierre is providing. Well, you, you, you missed the latest uh, choice of, of criticism from the media, which is that Pierre's rallies are too white. Uh, there's, there's too many white people at the rallies, and supposedly that's a great sin uh, in politics. That's right. I, but of course, if you actually go to one of these rallies, the, the rallies generally represent the communities that they're being held in. Um, and But, you know, it's it, it doesn't matter. There's always something, something wrong. You can't acknowledge that there's something happening, there's something unique happening in Canadian politics, because it doesn't line up with their vision of Canada and their understanding of the country. And so what do you think that is? What is it about Pierre's message and, and the message of the Conservative Party more broadly? Because even Patrick Brown claims to have signed up uh, as many members for the party as Justin Trudeau did. Uh, so, so it seems to me that there is an excitement around the Conservative Party and Conservative ideas uh, more broadly, not just necessarily Pierre. But, but what, what is it about Pierre's message specifically and then also Conservative message that's, that's resonating? 
Yeah, I think, look, I think it starts with the failures of Justin Trudeau. Obviously, Justin Trudeau uh, came in with very, very high expectations. He was going to do everything differently. Turned out to be a very, very traditional um, liberal politician in how he runs the government. His agenda has been much further left. Uh, and as a result, he completely failed the people who, who put trust in him at the, at the beginning. Um, you know, Canada is a lot more expensive place uh, to, uh, to live and to work in. Uh, today than it was when Justin Trudeau started. Uh, and a lot of people are correctly seeing that, that the Trudeau government has, has not just failed them, but has enriched uh, their rich and powerful friends, but has, and, and the people, the average person is struggling to get ahead in a way that I don't think has existed in, in, in probably even in my lifetime in this country, or certainly since, since, uh, since the last time we had a Trudeau as prime minister. And as a result, there are people looking for something different. And uh, you know, Pierre is, is, has, is a remarkable communicator with the ability to uh, communicate very, very clearly how he's going to be different than Trudeau and focus on the issues uh, that matter. And that's connecting. Um, and it's connecting in a big way. And we're seeing an incredible um, uh, uh, flood of support um, because of that. And so I'm, I'm hoping you can help us make sense of the way that the leadership process will go, because uh, the, the way that these candidates are elected is not the same as the way that we elect uh, politicians and prime ministers to federal office. There's all kinds of internal rules. And because of that, I mean, it's, it's interesting to look at someone like Jean Charest saying we have the points needed to win. And by that, he means that the conservatives have to win in, in, in order to get uh, votes. Well, you, you could probably explain it a lot better than I can, but it's it, you need to have a certain formula of support across the country in order to be able to win. So uh, hopefully you can help us uh, walk, walk, through, walk the viewer through how that's going to work. Yeah, basically the way it works is it's a little bit like the House of Commons in that each seat is equal. Um, so it doesn't matter if you, you know, uh, it, it, and the goal is to get is to get as many votes as possible in each seat. And the idea behind this is that the party shouldn't be able to be captured by someone who just signs up a ton of members in one area. So if everybody, everybody in Manitoba joined the party, they could swamp the party and, and take it over, for instance. So the idea is that if we want to elect a national government, we should have elect leaders that have support from broadly across the country. So the way it works is that each uh, riding is treated equally uh, and the percentage of the vote that each candidate gets in each riding is basically added up uh, to, and the person with the most number with they call points, which is basically each percent that everybody gets in each riding. Um, you add that up and the person with the most of those uh, is the winner on the final ballot. So the, if some, nobody gets over 50%, it's a preferential ballot. So the person with the least number of, of votes has their votes redistributed, the numbers are recalculated and, and we keep going. Um, so that means that you have to sign up people everywhere, which is good for the party. And it means that there's traditionally been this theory that, well, if you maximize your vote in areas with low membership, you can get small numbers of people uh, uh, to vote uh, and, uh, and actually be able to win uh, with, large, large, with large numbers of points, even if you, know, you lose ridings in Alberta that have 2,000 members. If you win a riding in, you know, in rural Quebec with 75 members, you can, you can win big. Um, and so often you get a, a, a difference between what's happening with the popular vote, the raw number of votes someone gets, and the actual number of points um, as a result. But what's, 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 what's happened here is Pierre signed up so many people that we've signed up, there's signed up people everywhere across the country. There aren't going to be very many ridings. And, you know, Mr. Brown's numbers are, are to be believed, and Mr. Sheree's because he signed up tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, the total conservative membership is going to be 600 and something thousand, maybe over, maybe more. Um, 
And as a result, there aren't going to be a lot of ridings that are for weak ridings, right? That, you know, uh, peers have signed up uh, over a thousand members in 111 ridings, hundreds and hundreds of members in lots more ridings. There aren't going to be ridings that have 36 people vote in, in, on, on election day. Uh, so it really actually changes the calculus in a way that hasn't happened in the past. It's going to be so interesting uh, to see how it all uh, plays out. Uh, some of the criticism towards uh, uh, Polyev's numbers, and I'll, I'll let you uh, explain this and, and, and sort of respond. So uh, Chisholm Pothier, who is a, ca- a, ma- a campaign member for Patrick Brown, he, he put this onto Twitter. He said, the Polyev campaign today published numbers that over the coming weeks will evaporate like the value of crypto. Last week, our campaign asked the party to release the full list, uh, membership list, Pierre's campaign lobbied hard and ultimately succeeded in blocking that. So a little bit of infighting and, and sort of claiming that that uh, Pierre's numbers might not be what they seem. Uh, what, 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 do you, what do you make of that? This is the number of people. If anything, this is this is a conservative number of people who, who signed who Pierre's campaign signed up. This was people who signed up on Pierre's website. Lots of people also bought memberships on the main party website. Um, so these numbers are the numbers who've signed up. The party goes through a verification process. And, and the reason that the party hasn't released the number yet is that there are a total number of memberships is the party has to go through a verification process, check to make sure each one of these memberships is valid, check to make sure they you know, live at a, an address that exists, all that sort of thing. And that takes time. So it's going to take the party, you know, in the past, it's taken a, a month or so for them to go through and, and evaluate all that. It might take a little longer this time because so many people have been signed up. But that's up to the party to figure that out. Um, you know, I, I think it was it's ironic that Mr. Potier is, is saying this um, when he was working for uh, for Patrick Brown. When Patrick Brown was leader of the Ontario PC party, he claimed he signed up 200,000 members. The party did an audit after he uh, resigned in disgrace and discovered that you know at least uh, that the membership was at least 67,000 members uh, smaller than, than Mr. Brown had uh, had claimed. So uh, you know uh, we'll see whose numbers uh, evaporate. I, I'm, you're, you're sort of a, a conservative insider. You talk to a lot of people within the party. Do you feel like there's a chism in the party that, um, that that there is a divide? I mean, it seems like the sort of war of words between some of the campaigns, notably between Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyev, but also a little bit of Jean Charest. Uh, is this normal or, or is this more intense than normal? And do you have the feeling that, uh, say, for instance, if, if Jean Charest ended up being uh, the candidate, would all of the other uh, new members rally around that leader? Would they rally around Pierre Polyev? Would they rally around Patrick Brown? Uh, what, what do you think about the unity of the party? Because there's, there's a lot of hay being made in the media about how the party is very divided and all this kind of stuff. I'm just wondering if you could, you could comment on that. Yeah, I don't think the party is any more divided now than it was during the last leadership race. I think leadership races themselves create the, the structure of the race creates the rhetoric around it. You know, in a, in a race like what we have uh, this time with Mr. Polyev, who seems to be the acknowledged front runner, uh, it is uh, incumbent upon the others to try to take him down. So they're going to throw a whole bunch of say a bunch of things. And on the flip side, Polyev campaign's got to keep every, anybody else from catching up. You know, in the, in the in the 2020 leadership race of O'Toole versus McKay, that race got extremely heated. Um, and uh, again, because it was a similar dynamic. Uh, but if you look back at the 2017 race, I don't think the 2017 race with 14 candidates in the ballot wasn't um, uh, uh, divisive or angry um, because of, uh, you know, it was a different time or something. I think that people, uh, when you're looking at that number of, of people running, 
it was obvious that nobody was going to win on or even come close to winning on the first ballot. And therefore, everybody had to run a more cooperative approach in order to get second ballot support. And that was much more explicit. Everyone was thinking along those lines. So as a result, you had to be careful about, people had to be more careful about the rhetoric they throw. In a front runner race, it's very, very different. So I think anytime you see a front runner race, you're going to see a much more quote unquote divisive race. But look, the Conservative Party has a history of coming uh, uh, together around leaders. Um, you know, Mr. O'Toole, uh, you know, uh, didn't have a majority of, of caucus endorsements. Uh, he was able to pull together a, a team. Caucus is united around him through the 2020 one election. He got his chance. And then obviously, I think he made a bunch of choices after that that resulted in him in him being uh, removed as leader. But that wasn't a result of the leadership race itself. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I think uh, I think I think a lot of it is just sort of media narrative uh, drama. They they like to make it seem like it's more contentious. It's uh, the media's really business, is. right? They, the me, drama sells newspapers, right? So fair <laughs> enough. Well, uh, Hamish, since I have you, I wanted to ask you about the uh, Ontario election because Doug Ford was just reelected with a uh, overwhelming majority, uh, obviously very popular in that province. Now, uh, I, I'm not personally a big Ford supporter or fan. I don't like the the way that he handled the lockdowns and COVID, uh, but but it seems pretty undeniable that he he has you know, that popularity in Ontario. So I'm wondering if you could uh, help us understand how was he able to win uh, so big in the election last week? Well, I think overwhelmingly, you know, he, 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 he caught the mood of the province, right? Most people in the province are generally fine with the way things are going. There wasn't a giant demand for change. Um, uh, the government, you know, has as much as, you know, and I think you and know, I probably agree on a lot of the, the lockdown restrictions, as much as the government may have done lots of lockdown things in the past, they seem pretty resolute on moving forward right now. And I think the, the mood of Canadians or Ontarians right now is the lockdown's a thing of the past, let's just move forward. And the Liberals and the NDP, I think, walked into a trap of their own making. They certainly got some hay earlier uh, by attacking Ford on whether he'd done the right thing around the lockdowns, but they didn't, they missed that the, that the province had moved on. And a large chunk of people just said, we want that to be in the past. We want to move forward in other things. And Ford's promising us that. Whereas uh, Del Duca and Horvath were continually talking about what Ford did wrong during the lockdown, whether you know they should, if they came out too early at this time or that time, and, and really trying to relitigate it and making the point and, and continually saying that they were in favor of more restrictive COVID measures when the mood of the province had moved on. So I, I think Ford, you know, said people look that, yeah, we did all that stuff. I don't not agree with everything of it. Some people wanted me to do more. Some people wanted me to do less. We got through it, we're moving forward. And the other parties were really focused on the past. And I think that more than anything else allowed, allowed Ford to move on that. And, um, you know, a truly remarkable thing happened, which is the, you know, a near perfect split between the Liberals and NDP. They got almost exactly the same number of votes, um, which allows, uh, which is truly remarkable. I certainly expected that one of the Liberals and the NDP would have been able to capture the public imagination, become the anti-Ford party, and you would have seen one of those, one of those options, maybe over 30%, the other under 20 both of them right on around 24% was absolutely staggering uh, and really speaks to the complete ineptness of those two campaigns uh, more than anything else, um, uh, which is just truly remarkable. They never really figured out that Ford wasn't their enemy, that the other one of them was the enemy. You know, in order to win, 
one of those liberals NDP had to become the anti-Ford option. And the way to do that was to really attack and put down their competitor. But they were sort of happy to, to not do that. And I think uh, reap the results uh, that, that, that they sowed. Interesting. And one of the things that I, I thought was really remarkable about the PCs in Ontario is the number of union endorsements that they got. I know Monty McNaughton, who is the labor minister, was working incredibly hard to uh, win over and get these endorsements. And it's sort of interesting because we've long heard conservatives talk about how there's a great ideological shift and that the um, the left-wing parties, traditional left-wing parties, have sort of abandoned the working class and conservatives culturally uh, are, are more aligned with the values of, of people who are part of those unions and, and especially private sector unions. Um, I'm wondering if you can, you can comment, tell us, a little bit about uh, how how the Ford government was able to uh, capture the support of, of the private sector unions in Ontario. Well, I think you make an extremely good point that these are all private sector unions to endorse um, the, uh, the Ford government. I also think that the union movement itself is going through a very difficult time and a real sort of divergence between the public and private sector unions. Um, their members and ship of the public sector, the private sector unions are culturally, I think, quite different. And a lot of them are voting conservative anyway. Um, a lot of the membership has it's been true for a long time. A lot of the membership of, of, of private sector unions votes conservative. And the unions, I think, looked at the situation, saw that they had a government that was not hostile to the to the act, to the desires of, of private sector unions. Um, and that combined with good outreach from both uh, Minister McNaughton and the premier uh, and the ineptness of the liberals and the NDP who sort of took them for granted. Made it with that, with their membership being quite, you know, favorable to or accepting of the Ford government, made it quite easy for these union leaders to go and endorse the Ford government uh, this time. The significance of that also is it took a lot of that anti-conservative union money off the table. It's not that these these unions went and spent a ton of money in favor of the conservative government, but if you think back to the working families coalitions that ran attack heads against against Tim Hudak in the past, spent millions upon millions of dollars helping the McGuinty and Wynn governments uh, get elected. Just the fact that they weren't active doing that was a huge boon uh, for the Conservatives. Interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, one one other topic that I thought we should... Uh rediscover re, uh, just because last time I had you on, we talked a little bit about Alberta, and I think we were both off in what we saw. We, like I, I uh, certainly uh, stand corrected because I, I had just been in Calgary, and people I was speaking to were really telling me that Kenny had it in the bag and that he was going to win and that they weren't worried about it. I heard that from many, many sort of conservative, what I would call political insiders. And I think even, even you know, the day after Kenny uh, resigned, I was trying to get some of these people to come on my show, and they, they basically all said no because they didn't know what to make of it. They were blindsided and, and very surprised by the fact that Kenny didn't uh, manage to get a bigger percentage of the support of the party. You know, people were saying it was going to be 70, 75 percent. So I was certainly uh, incorrect, and the people I was talking to were, uh, you know, not, not, not <laughs> didn't have their finger on the pulse like I thought they did. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, were, were you surprised? And and uh, well, what do you what do you what do you make from what happened out in Alberta? Yeah, I, mean, I think everybody got wrong. The the, the, the pro Kenny people I was talking to were all saying high 60s, 70 percent, he's going to be fine. The anti Kenny people were all saying, oh, there's no way he gets more than 45. It'll be closer to 40. And I tended to believe the the pro Kenny people a little bit more, and I thought he would be okay. I'm not sure if I ever believed 70 percent, but I but I, I I thought he was going to be okay. But uh, 51, I mean, everyone was wrong. 
Um, and I think he, you know, I think at that level, he knew it, by re resigning at that point made sense because he knew he, he, the party would be too divided going forward and he hadn't won a decisive enough mandate. Um, so yeah, it was certainly a surprise. Um, uh, I certainly didn't think it was going to be uh, a number as low as that. Um, you know, but obviously the anti-Kenny forces uh, had signed up a lot of people to the membership and were able to get them out. The question becomes is, and that this has going to have a big impact on the leadership race to come, because obviously the people signing folks up, but a lot of anti-Kenny type um, members obviously are already members of the party. They've already signed them up. So in a leadership race where typically uh, insurgents have to sign up, people who, who got a um, uh, 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 an anti-establishment kind of view have to be signed up and that takes time and effort and in what will presumably be not a super long race that makes it difficult we're actually walking into this race with a significant chunk if not a majority of the party um, or close to a majority of the party who are very at odds with the Kenny government's been doing and that's kind of a big impact on the leadership race and it's going to make things very, a very different leadership race than we've expected and you know the, the assumption that uh, it's sort of a well-known cabinet minister who, you know, genuinely believes in the same thing Kenny has, we will walk into the leadership, as you might expect in a lot of parties that as they as a leader leaves, you know, that's sort of the, often the person who follows, um, you know, it's going to be, a, I don't know if we can assume that's going to be the case in Alberta. So uh, what are you, what are you hearing in terms of who, who's going to be running and who, who could be the, the next successor? I know Travis Taves uh, toes, the uh, finance minister under, under Kenny is, uh, has announced that he's running. We have Danielle Smith and Brian Jean from the sort of more wild rose side. There's been some rumors about uh, federal MP, Michelle Rumpel, Garner, perhaps throwing her hat in the race. Uh, what, what, what are you hearing and who do you think would be a good candidate to replace Premier Kenny? Well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to keep quiet on who I think would be a good candidate because I, I I think that we have to really have to understand who the field is is left and you know I I've heard there's up to 15 people considering it. It's a wide open field. Um, from what I'm hearing right now, I think Danielle Smith's uh, gaining gaining a lot of early support, um, particularly amongst the sort of anti Kenny folks. Um, Brian Jean's doing well, but has a long way to go yet. Um, and, you know, we'll see from there, but yeah, as I said, it could be, a, I think, I think this race is going to get a lot bigger, um, uh, and it's going to be very difficult to predict the shape of the race until we understand the final, the final tally. Um, the big danger of this, of the race for the UCP is if it comes down to really a sort of division between those anti-Kenny, um, folks and the pro-Kenny folks or, or whatever issues, however it, it, it plays out. And you can see, a you know, if there's a, group of cabinet ministers uh, run um, and they get uh, you know half the vote and then there's a uh, you know sort of the anti-Kenny folks whether it be some you know Gene and and Smith and maybe Todd Lowe and now an independent MLA those folks if they all their votes it's a preferential ballot if their votes all sort of cascade into each other and we end up with final two that are all that are very evenly split if we end up with a, re a result like what we got in the leadership or the review of 51 percent or so I worry about the future of the party being divided. I think this, this is a party that's, that's very, very divided. Um, and it's going to take uh, a leadership, a leader from whichever side they come from with real vision and an ability to, you know, reach, reach to the other side of the party um, in order to keep the party together, which is the only way that the NDP can be stopped in, in Alberta in the next election. I think that's a really good point that the, if, if anything, one of the main lessons that conservatives ought to, ought to draw from what happened with Premier Kenny 
is that whoever is the leader has to work incredibly hard to keep the party together, to, to talk to all factions, to make sure that everyone's getting something that they like. And you can't just have this sort of unilateral uh, approach to governance. You really have to uh, you know, bring everyone to the table. And uh, ho hopefully the next leader will be able to do that. Well, Hamish, uh, we always appreciate your, your time and your insights. Thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure as always. Hey, that's Hamish Marshall. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Mm -hmm.